We've been in a series in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, Philippians, and it may be helpful for us to review a little bit of where we've come from. In chapter 1, we looked at this idea of struggling well, that life carries with it its challenges. And the issue is not whether we will struggle, the issue is whether or not we will struggle well and have the joy of the Christian journey. And so, in chapter 1, struggling well in community was our first theme. And then, struggling well that Christ would be proclaimed. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached. And then this, I rejoice, Paul says. And then, struggling well no matter what happens. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The greatest two binary things that we could have is life or death. And Paul says, even then, we can rejoice. Uh, we can struggle well. And then to struggle well with all, without fear was the end of chapter 1, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Then in chapter 2, we learned about struggling well in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves. And how do we do that? By looking to Christ, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Uh, there was some question then, well, is that by my effort or not? And the answer is yes and no. That, uh, in fact, according to chapter 2, verse 13, uh, it, we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, uh, but it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So, we're to work, but God is at work even in our working. There are two good examples of this that Paul gives then at the end of chapter 2 in Timothy and Epaphroditus. In chapter 3 then, we looked at struggling well through no confidence in ourselves, but our confidence is in our dependency on Christ and the gospel. Uh, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. And then we saw that this was through faith in Christ with our eyes on the true prize as we finish chapter 3, where Paul says, uh, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So all of these through chapters 1, 2, and 3 are about this principle of struggling well. Now, we come to chapter 4. I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And all of this may sound like a very good Sunday school lesson to this point. It's, uh, it's really great, but how do we put it into practice? How do we live it? What, what are some ways that this is going to be changing how I live my everyday life? And Verses 1 through 7 of Philippians chapter 4 is all about struggling well in everyday circumstances. He's going to give us some specific everyday circumstances that you may look at and you go, yeah, been there, done that, right? And there's some very specific instructions that Paul gives for struggling well in those everyday circumstances. That's where we now turn, and I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Philippians 4, 1 through 7. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, 
Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Please have a seat. Struggling well in everyday difficulties means that we stand firm in who we are and in whose we are. So let's look at both of those. First, who we are. Paul has a pile of list of who the Philippians are in his relationship with them in chapter 4, verse 1. Who we are. Brothers. That, that term, by the way, includes brothers and sisters. It's a generic term for a family in horizontal relationship with one another. <clears throat> and this is so important that if we're going to struggle well in everyday difficulties, we need each other, the family of God, the brothers and sisters in God's family. And so we stand firm in who we are. We are brothers and sisters in a family. Whom I love, he says, the word is beloved, that relates to the horizontal relationship that brothers and sisters have. It's a relationship of love. Now, it's based, of course, on the vertical relationship we have with God, but I think Paul primarily has in mind this horizontal relationship that we have with one another. And then he says, whom I love and long for. There's a desire for continued connection, not a thought of, well, let me stay away from these folks. It's rather a hunger for more connection. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says that uh, God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Um, he talks about how he's convinced that he knows he'll remain and continue for, with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. That's chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Uh, he also says uh, at the end in chapter 2, verse 23, I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. He's got a longing for continued connection with the Philippians. He gives Epaphroditus as an example of such longing, and he uses the same word that's used here in chapter 4. He has been longing for you all. So part of being a, a Christian, part of being a Christian is being a brother or a sister in God's family, being in connection, and not just being connected, but having a desire for continued and increased connection. So, 
where you are engaged in the pathways of discipleship here at East White Oak and uh, our worship time in our ABFs and in our small groups, you are developing those connections. Encourage that. Fan that into flame. And then he says, my brothers whom I love and long for, he calls them my joy and crown. To call the Philippians his joy is something that has to do with the present tense, and to call them his crown has something to do with the future. Let's think about that for just a second. He calls them his joy, the welcome thoughts he has for them. Paul's fulfillment of his work is in fact the changed lives of Christ followers. That's what he's all about. So, for example, he says in chapter 2, verse 15, uh, excuse me, verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. It's not a sinful pride here, but rather a sense of looking back with joy in accomplishment that these guys are growing in Christ. Uh, the Apostle John said something similar in 3 John 2, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. And so Paul calls these guys his joy, his present joy. He also calls them his crown. I think it's a future crown. The result of God's work and of Paul's end as he would meet the Lord is that there is the crowning glory of these whom he has helped to come to know Jesus and to grow in their relationship with him. And so, both a present joy and a future crown. Paul uses the same language when he wrote to a church just a few miles down the road at Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, he says this, What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And so, if we're to struggle well, we've got to stand firm in who we are in this intimate, horizontal relationship that we have with fellow believers in Jesus Christ. As if uh, Paul understands that we don't understand or embrace very much how loved we are, he repeats the word beloved again. The chapter 4 verse 1 starts out, therefore my brothers whom I love, and then he repeats using the same word, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. It's repeated in the same verse. Starts the verse that way, ends the verse that way. Do you think maybe he's wanting to emphasize the value that he's placing on his relationship with these dear brothers and sisters? In fact, one commentator says this, Paul simply cannot stop the flood of affectionate terms that characterize his feelings toward the Philippians. He can't help it. He's just overwhelmed with love. So that's who we are. Now let's think about whose we are. It says here, stand firm thus, and then this phrase, in the Lord. This is a key phrase in this section because we're going to see the phrase in the Lord in verse 2. 
entreating Euodia and Satiki to agree in the Lord. We'll see it again in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. What does in the Lord mean? Well, it's the only way that we'll be able to stand firm in this struggle that we call life. It's the only way to struggle well. It's the only way to stand firm. Paul knows that the struggle was a fool's errand when he trusted in his own righteousness. Now, life in this present struggle can be lived well even when we experience the worst of what this world brings us. Why? Because we are in the Lord. We belong to Him. We are His. So, what do we do? We stand firm. This is a military term, and you remember that Philippi was a Roman colony made up of many retired Roman soldiers, and so it's no surprise that there are several military terms that Paul uses here. But he's not saying stand firm as an individual, like you're standing firm against the blast of your difficulties in life. It's a plural command, stand firm together as God's family, so that when there's one that's going through a difficult time, the others who are stronger can help. And then those, when, when, when your time comes for your struggle, others can help you. It's an unswerving faith of genuine believers in Jesus, not, in, not the shifting sand of the many that are described in chapter 3 who are the enemies of the cross. Stand firm in your citizenship that you have already in heaven. The language of chapter 1 verse 27 is called to mind here. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then there's this word thus. We sometimes pass over words like that, don't we? But it's an important word here because it means stand firm in the truth of who we are. Stand firm honestly, truthfully. This is really real. You can actually do this. Stand firm in the truth of our citizenship in heaven. So, if we're going to struggle well in everyday difficulties, we'll need to stand firm in who we are and in whose we are. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. Struggling well means that we think rightly about everyday conflicts. Now, I've shared this little ditty with you before, but I'll share it with you again. To live above with the saints I love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints I know, well, that's another story. Uh, in everyday life, we do face the challenges, don't we, of getting along with one another. And here we have two women, Euodia and Syntyche, and they're not getting along. Uh, both women have been fully engaged in the, in the ministry of evangelism and discipleship, not just with Paul, but with others. Uh, this is really rare that we see this kind of instruction. I entreat Euodia. I entreat Syntyche. It's a call. It's an urge. It is a plea on Paul's part. And he names two specific people. Paul rarely names names this way, which means that the conflict between the two women must have been public. 
But it's not out of anger that Paul names them. He's not trying to call them out in a way of shaming them. To the contrary, these are women who have been fully engaged in Christian evangelism and discipleship. While we typically think that keeping things anonymous is a way of kindness and blessing, all too frequently, anonymity is really a way to identify conflicts. And so, Paul identifies all sorts of conflicts where he doesn't name names. In Galatians 5.10, 6.12, Romans 16.17, 1 Corinthians 4.18, uh, the immoral guy in 1 Corinthians 5, the people doing lawsuits against each other in 1 Corinthians 6. No, calling these women out by name is not a way to shame them, but rather to say of his fond affection for them. These names, Euodia and Syntyche, mean roughly, in Greek, success and lucky. I entreat success and I entreat lucky to agree in the Lord. Why would their names be that? Well, it is because these Macedonian women did not grow up in a Jewish or a Christian family. Rather, they had pagan backgrounds. And they had come to know Jesus. Their lives were changed and transformed. They were, you know, Macedonian women were known for their leadership skills. And these women were leaders in the church in Philippi. The church at Philippi had a strong female component, beginning at the very start of it in Acts 16 with Lydia. And yet here these two women are, fully uh, engaged in Christian ministry and yet not agreeing with one another. Notice that he tells them when it says to agree that it's the word to think the same. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to think the same in the Lord. That's a word that we've seen before in Philippians. Go back to chapter 2, verse 2 where it says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, thinking the same. The same word is used in chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. Think the same among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We saw it in chapter 3, verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think the same, think this way. It's in chapter 3, verse 19, talking about the enemies of the cross and that they're thinking the same about earthly things. Their minds are set on earthly things. And now what Paul says is, Yodi and Syntyche, I entreat you, think the same in the Lord. Now, we need help sometimes, the help of others in conflicts. Paul is very careful here not to take sides in this disagreement. In fact, he's very careful to use exactly parallel expressions when he addresses each of them. Do you notice it? I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche. He doesn't change either one of them as though there would be some hint that he's got one particular person that he favors over the other. That he's thinking about them exactly the same way. What he wants, though, is to keep the main thing, the main thing, to agree in the Lord. 
And then verse 3, the need for the help of others in conflicts. Who is being asked to help? This person who's called a true companion. It is possible that it is a person's name, loyal syzygis, although there is no name in Greek literature like that, so it's doubtful that it's a specific person named syzygis. Rather, it means simply companion. An unnamed ministry partner of Paul's, who perhaps was not a native Philippian, but who is there in Philippi, and Paul is saying, I'm asking you, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Um, Sometimes we need help, don't we? Remember what Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Paul gives an explanation of why this true companion should get involved. They've labored side by side with me in the gospel. That's the biggest reason based on the grammar of the text. Paul says, help these women because they're on mission. We want to keep them on mission. We don't want them to get derailed by their disagreements. And then secondarily, help them because of their prior work in the community is an example, a paradigm of working toward unity. They've already worked together with other people. They've worked with Clement. They've worked with the rest of my fellow workers. It should be uh, certainly possible then for them to work together. And then the third thing that he says here gives a third reason why to get involved, whose names are in the book of life. Our common future should bind us in current community. You having a hard time getting along with somebody in the body of Christ? Just know this, you're going to spend forever with them, right? Our common future should bind our current community. That's why he adds this phrase, whose names are in the book of life. So, struggling well in everyday circumstances means that we think rightly about everyday conflicts. And when we are in conflict, we seek to be overcoming it and to agree in the Lord. And when we see others in God's family that are engaged in conflict, that we actually seek to help overcome, not taking sides as much as helping them to get to a place of agreement. Now, as we finish up here in verses 4 through 7, Paul gives four commands so that you can struggle well. These are very famous words. Let's not run over them too quickly because sometimes familiarity leads us to think that we understand it more than we really do and If we slow down, we might be able to gather some greater understanding and help equipping for struggling well. The first command, rejoice in the Lord. It is a repeated command. Again, I say rejoice. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. So, this is a theme for this letter, the terms of joy and rejoice. 
It's in chapter 1, verses 4, 18, and 25. It's in chapter 2, verses 2, 17, 18, 28, and 29. It's in chapter 3, verse 1, finally rejoice in the Lord. It's in chapter 4, verse 1, they're my joy and crown. It's in chapter 4, verse 4 here, and we're going to see it again in chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. Joy in the midst of struggles is what Paul is wanting his recipients of his letter to receive. And in the name of Jesus, I urge you, receive it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It must be in the Lord, a repeated theme of this particular paragraph. But we rejoice, even in the midst of challenging circumstances. The second command is in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, the Lord is at hand. Um, this word reasonableness is a very uncommon word in the New Testament. Uh, it, it perhaps means gentleness. Uh, certainly, I think the idea of gentle forbearance, that is, you're not getting too excited, out of control, you're seeking to be unfazed, unfazed by the challenges that come your way. doesn't mean you don't have honest emotions. He's not telling you to be dishonest. But he's, asking, he's saying, don't be panicked. When things hit you, don't panic. A number of years ago, my youngest son and I went and took uh, scuba diving lessons. We got certified as scuba divers. And in the book... It talked about how you need to avoid becoming a panicked diver. And one of the descriptions, they gave a list of directions of what a panicked diver was like, and it said, their eyes are wide and unseeing. And that's such an interesting phrase. I, I kind of have kept it in my mind. To have our eyes wide means we're trying to understand, we're trying to get it, but we're so involved in our own panic over our circumstances that we don't see anything. Particularly, we don't see God at work. And so when Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, what he's saying is, don't be a panic diver. <laughs> be Gentle in forbearance, let your reasonableness be known to all. Seek to be unfazed by the circumstances that life brings us because in a sin-cursed world, the whole creation is going to groan and we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Romans chapter 8. It's going to happen. So don't Become a panic diver in the midst of it. While we're doing that, he adds this phrase in this command, the Lord is at hand. Interesting phrase, isn't it? What it means is, the Lord is right there beside you. He is very near to you even when he may feel far away. You don't have to panic because the Lord is near. There's another aspect in which this phrase may be used, though. 
It may be he's not just talking about the nearness of the Lord to us in the present. It may be he's talking about our redemption that's coming. The Lord's coming. His near. And so I think there's both and here. I think that we don't have to be panic divers. We can be unfazed in the midst of all of the challenges and trials we face because the Lord is near to us right now and everything is going to turn out in the most awesome way that it, the Bible says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the things that the Lord has promised for those who love him. I think one of the greatest emotions that we're going to have when we're gathered together in heaven, and won't that be a wonderful day? We're gathered together and we're just all going to go, can you believe it? This is amazing. And we're with the Lord Jesus. And why did I ever worry at all over anything? That's going to be probably the first couple hundred thousand years of our experience, right? Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So rejoice in the Lord. Reveal your sanity, being aware of the time left on the clock. The Lord is near. And then... These very famous verses, 6 and 7, do not be anxious about anything. In all the everyday circumstances and details of life, do not be anxious. Uh, the phrase anxious, uh, the word anxious, has to do with distractions, things that take our affection and attention off of Christ. Do not be anxious. Don't let those things distract you. Now, Paul, as he says this, I want you to know Paul is also aware that he himself doesn't live up to that in every way, does he? Um, he said earlier um, that it's not that I've already uh, obtained all this or I'm already perfect, so he himself wrestles with this. Let me give you a couple of ways in which we know that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, Paul uses the same word, don't be anxious about anything, to say, and on top of all this, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So we know that he is a fellow struggler with us in this. He uses a different word, but it's the idea is the same, and I think in chapter 2, verse 28 of Philippians, where he says, I'm the more eager to send Epaphroditus so that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. And so, Paul says this, don't be anxious about anything in the context of his own awareness of his own frailties. In all the circumstances and details of life, rid ourselves of distractions. Don't let those take up all of our attention because we're not going to be able to do anything about them anyway. Well, what can we do? Well, what we can do is request help from God. That's what we can do. Look what it says there. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. And then he uses three words that are all synonyms. Prayer supplication, let your requests be made known. They're all words that describe ask help from God. Isn't that simple and beautiful 
and wonderful that God invites us to do that. Request help from God. And we do that with one other word for prayer that's used here in verse 7 or verse 6. With thanksgiving. Accompanying our prayers with thanksgiving. Why does Paul add that? Because it's thanksgiving is a reflection on the past work of God. We're thanking Him for how He's already solved many, many problems in our lives. So now that we're facing a new one, we, th- we begin by thanking Him for the things that have happened in the past, and that emboldens us to pray and gives us confidence that He'll answer our prayers. Thanksgiving allows us, it gives us permission to consider God's generosity. When we thank God, we start thinking about how generous He is, and then when we meet with the present circumstance, we go, but He's generous. I thank Him for all the ways He's been so generous. And now we know that in this circumstance that I'm facing right here and right now, He's going to be generous too. I can trust Him. The result is resting in God's promise. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, the shalom of God, this word means everything in its proper order, seeing how God is going to work everything out for our good and for His glory. The peace of God, it surpasses all understanding. Does that mean it's a peace that surpasses understanding? We can't even understand it? Or does it mean that a peace that it goes against all logic? Well, maybe it's both, right? There is a peace that comes to us from God that will guard our hearts and our minds. There is another military word. It's going to guard our hearts and our minds. It's a a sentry, a sentry to our mind, to our thinking, uh, keeping our thoughts from going in the wrong direction. It's a sentry for our hearts, keeping our emotions from going off into panic diver mode. (laughs) The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, the assurance that you belong to the Savior. Now, as I finish up this message as we look at these four commands so that we can struggle well in everyday circumstances, every one of those commands is a plural command, and we tend to think of them as individuals. Every one of them is a plural command. All y'all rejoice in the Lord. We do it in community. We're not doing it alone. All y'all let your reasonableness be known to everyone. All of you do not be anxious about anything. What it means is every once in a while one of us is going to fall down on one or more of those, right? We all are just like Paul. We all are going to fail. We're all going to not, we're not perfect yet. And so that's why we do it together as the body of Christ so that when one hurts, others pick them up with prayer and petition and thanksgiving. And there's a peace that comes over it when the body of Christ ministers to one another in this way. 
When I began my preparations for this study in Philippians, I did not know of Carol's cancer diagnosis. I did not know what struggles we were headed into. Isn't that remarkable? And so on Monday, when I was in a family surgery waiting room, I was preparing for the message today, reading these words. And knowing of your prayers. And there was peace. Not because I was so spiritual. It was because of the plural obedience of those commands. This is why we need each other. I needed you. Carol needed you at that moment. We didn't have it in ourselves. And your ministry to our hearts is one I will treasure not just for the rest of my life, but for all of eternity. And this is why we are the church. And if you are a person who's never asked Jesus to be your Savior, I want to invite you to be a part of this family, man. <laughs> there isn't anything like it where we can care for one another. We have a sister right now who's going through really hard thing in Joe Gerst with this cancer diagnosis. It's, it's hard. But we're going to be the church for her, amen? And we're going to pray. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let our requests be made known to God and the peace of God that transcends, surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the church. Thank you for the way in which Paul constructed these instructions for us so that we can know how to struggle well in everyday difficulties. Help us to stand firm in who we are and in whose we are. Help us to think rightly about everyday conflicts that we have with one another. And help us to rejoice in the Lord. Let our reasonableness be made known, for the Lord is near. Not being anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, letting our requests be made known to you. And then, Lord, let your peace just shower down and cover us as a church guarding our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Bless that person who's never put their faith in Christ. May they see these truths and long to know Jesus so that they can be part of this terrific family and be able to have eternal life with you forever. Help them to say, Lord, forgive me of my sin by what you did at the cross. Grant to me the eternal life you've promised. In Jesus' name, amen.